0: Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. We do see it morning by morning. All that we've needed, you've provided. You know what we need, even before we ask. And so we thank you for providing. And we thank you most of all for our Lord Jesus. In whose name that we have gathered here, and whose name we, we want to honor, and from whose word we want to hear. So we pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies, and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants, as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I read from a newspaper in Lubbock, Texas, ran the following headline this last week about a church in that city. Here's the headline. Ex -ex Christ the King Cathedral employee facing federal wire fraud charges arraigned in Lubbock. Turns out this church had hired uh, this man in 2019 to manage the church's Venmo and PayPal accounts so church members could contribute through Venmo and PayPal, then they hired this guy to take the money and to transfer it uh, from time to time, periodically, into the church's accounts. The only problem was, is that this guy that they hired to manage these accounts, allegedly, started skimming some of it for himself. He was taking thousands of dollars a month for himself, and authorities are estimating now that he had stolen about well, over $250,000 before he was finally discovered. He fled the country after this, and he's now apparently in Colombia. and the U.S. is trying to extradite him so that they, he can be prosecuted here. Also this past week, another headline, this, this one out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Here's the headline. Pastor pleads guilty to tax COVID loan fraud while leading two Charlotte churches. Turns out from the years 2009 to 2017, this pastor only filed taxes for himself one time. In 2014, he did this, and uh, the church paid him, apparently, $390,000 that year. He claimed to have earned $66,300, which gave him a tax bill of $5,500, which he did not pay. On top of that, the guy filed a fraudulent claim with the IRS to get his hands on some of that COVID relief money that was coming out in 2020. And the the newspaper says that court documents say he filed a loan application to the Paycheck Protection Program, a federal COVID disaster relief program, using fabricated payroll and tax records filed in behalf of the church to land a $52,500 loan. Court documents didn't indicate how he ended up using the money. So, how does a church leader get to the point that they are willing to abandon all financial integrity in order to bilk God's people out of tens of thousands of dollars, or in this other one case, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars? How does anybody get to the point where they're so financially unfaithful that they're just lying to the government? Anyone who has the motive and opportunity can be tempted to seize somebody else's wealth for themselves. And the motive in these cases is pretty familiar to us because it's rooted in something ancient. It's rooted in the sinfulness of the human heart. We all know 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang notice there that it's not the money that's the root of all sorts of evil in fact money can be a wonderful tool stewarded faithfully in the service of god it's not money that's the root of all sorts of evil it's the love of money that is the source Which means that the fundamental problem is human idolatry and greed and sin. It's not the money itself. Any sinner, even you, can be tempted along these lines. All you need is the sinful motive and the opportunity, and you can find yourself in a very bad place pretty quickly. If you're not vigilant over your own heart. So the question is, how are we supposed to have financial integrity in the face of these powerful realities, in the face of the temptations that are emerging from within our own hearts. Well, that's exactly the question I think Paul helps us with in the passage before us this morning. If you haven't already, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 in verses 16 through 24. Second Corinthians chapter 8 in verses 16 to 24. In this section of the letter to the Corinthians, Chapters eight through nine, Paul has turned his attention to um, talking about this offering that he was collecting for the poor saints in Jerusalem. These saints in Jerusalem were in dire need, and Paul and the other apostles wished for the Gentile churches to meet that need with an offering. So, in the first fifteen chapters, uh, first fifteen verses of this chapter, Paul's invoking the general, the generous example of the Macedonian churches who had already given, and he was pointing to them to try to encourage the Corinthians to be generous just like they had been. And so Paul and his ministry partners are receiving funds, get this, they're receiving funds from these numerous Gentile congregations with the promise that they would handle these funds faithfully and bring them to Jerusalem just as they had promised to to do. Here's the question, though. How do these congregations know whether Paul is above board when it comes to taking up all this money from everybody. How can they be assured that he's not like the other money-grubbing preachers who come in and out of the towns, you know, working like mercenaries for hire? Paul is about to send one of his fellow workers to them, Titus, who is going to collect more money from the Corinthians. How do the Corinthians know whether Paul has any integrity in his administration through Titus in these offerings? What if Paul's skimming off the top? How would they know if Paul were deploying their offerings faithfully? And so this little paragraph that we're looking at this morning is Paul promoting the integrity of the offering by sending, uh, by telling them that he's sending two men along with Titus to ensure the integrity of it. And so the integrity of these men is going to guarantee the integrity of the collection. And so as you look at verses 16 through 24, you're going to get Paul introducing you to three people, introducing you to Titus and then two unnamed guys. But Titus and these two unnamed guys are faithful men. In fact, uh, Titus is an earnest man. And then there's a second guy who's a gospel man. And then a third guy who's a tested man. So there's your are where we're going this morning. We see an earnest man, a gospel man, and a tested man. So the first one there is an earnest man. Everybody look at verse 16. It says this, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Now, we all know who Titus is. If you've read through the New Testament, at all you recognize him as Paul's trusted fellow worker in the gospel. Uh, Titus first shows up in this conflict over circumcision that we read about in the book of Galatians where we find out that uh, Titus was a, actually himself a Gentile, a Greek. Um, late in Paul's ministry, we find out that Paul is going to leave Titus in a place called on the island of Crete to set in order what remains in the church there, which in that case involved appointing elders to lead that church. So Titus was you know, a vital part of Paul's ministry. Titus's name appears 13 times in the New Testament, but nine of those times that he appears is in this book uh, of 2 Corinthians. So um, Titus is there throughout Paul's ministry, but you get a high concentration of his name appearing here in 2 Corinthians. And this is where we find out that Titus has been serving as Paul's emissary and messenger and representative in Corinth. When Paul couldn't be in Corinth, sometimes he'd send Titus there to send messages To do pastoral care there, he was there with Paul's authority. Titus was likely the one who carried that severe letter that we talked about earlier in the book, when Paul had to write that hard letter to the Corinthians to confront them. Titus is probably the one that carried that and who had brought back news to Paul that the congregation had responded well to that letter. You remember that from chapter seven? So think about this Titus has a relationship with Paul, he's got a relationship with the Corinthians. He's been kind of in the middle of this uh, these struggles and tensions between Paul and the church at Corinth. Maybe Titus had seen enough Corinthian carnality to last him a lifetime. Maybe after the congregation's food fights with Paul, Titus would have been tempted to grow cold towards the Corinthians. I don't know. It's not beyond the realm of imagination. But Paul says that the opposite has happened inside of Titus. Titus isn't indifferent or cold about the Corinthians at all. He loves them and the text says is eager to serve them and Paul which is why Paul says here in verse 16 he thanks God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Titus wasn't ready to kick the Corinthians to the curb just like Paul wasn't ready to kick the Corinthians to the curb no matter all of their recalcitrance and belligerence that they had shown in the past. Now, who is it that gives a person the ability to love those who are difficult to love? Who is it that gives you the ability to love those people in your life who are difficult to love? The only person who can pull off that miracle Is God Himself. God alone can turn our hearts to will and to act according to His good pleasure. And He does that for us. He is doing that for us. He is sufficient to help you to love people when it's difficult to love them because of carnality. And so Paul is thanking the Lord that God's put it into the heart of Titus to give him the same earnest care that I have for you. Paul gives evidence of Titus's love and concern for the Corinthians in verse 17. Look at verse 17. What's the evidence of it? For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. What is the evidence that Titus has the same love and concern for the Corinthians that Paul has? It's that Titus has accepted, quote, our appeal well, what appeal has Paul made? You remember when Paul says, he's using that um, that apostolic first person plural again, right? So when he says we and our and us, he means me and I and my. Okay, so um, he says that Titus accepted our appeal. Well, what appeal? Well, that's a direct reference back up to verse six, where Paul says we appealed to Titus as he had start that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace, which means. Back in verse 6, you'll remember, Paul had said that we had asked Titus to come back to Corinth and to finish what he started in terms of taking up this, this offering. So he was supposed to go back and finish this up. And he's now telling, Paul's telling the Corinthians that Titus has accepted this assignment. But it's not as if Titus has undertaken this work grudgingly. As if to say, well, I guess I, you know, I got it. And Paul's an apostle. I got to do whatever he says. Paul says it's not like that. Um, it's not like that at all. Titus himself is in earnest as he goes to Corinth. It says he's going of his own accord. And that word translated as earnest, it pertains to someone who's eager and willing to carry out a duty or an obligation. That's what it means. So it's Titus's eagerness to carry out Paul's appeal. That's the evidence of Titus's love and concern for the Corinthians. You know the difference between somebody doing something grudgingly and doing it because they want to. Um, this is another example of what John says in 1 John three eighteen. Little children, let us not love with word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So if you talk a big game about love, but don't walk a big game in love, your talk doesn't mean anything. Love is a disposition of the heart that always springs forth in concrete deeds. In the way that you treat people. It's what James talks about in in chapter 2 of his letter. He says, if if, however you are fulfilling the royal law. The royal law meaning to love one another. According to the scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily, daily food. And one of you says to them go in peace be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? The answer is, it's no use at all. If all you're doing is loving in word or in tongue and not in deed and in truth, it doesn't really, it's not really love. And a part of Titus's integrity that's going to guarantee the integrity of the offering that he's administering with Paul is that he has a real, live, genuine earnestness for serving God's people, which means he loves them. And God is Made Titus to be this. It's the evidence of grace in Titus. I just want to say to you, the same thing is true of you and of me. Your integrity and usefulness to the Lord likewise consists, in part, in your earnestness for serving God's people. It is the evidence of the love of God having been shed abroad in your heart. It's the fruit of the grace of God in your life. You cannot really conjure these feelings up within your own sinful self. Um, We are predisposed to be selfish. So this thing has to happen in us by miracle. It has to happen in us like it happened in Titus. Because God puts that in a person's heart by the miracle of regeneration. To love freely and wholeheartedly like this requires the Spirit. It's all the resource that you will ever need to to love like this. This is what Titus has. It's what you have if you're a follower of Christ. And it's why Titus is an earnest man here in verses 16 and 17. But look at this second guy who who we're calling a gospel man in verses 18 through 21. Everybody look at verse 18. With him, with Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. So Paul says that he's sending the second brother to Corinth along with Titus. Now the ESV's translation, which is what I just read, almost makes it sound like this guy is some kind of a celebrity. Because it says that he's famous. Um. That's not really the, the sense of what's going on here. It's not so much that he's famous. Literally, the term there, rendered as famous, is not so much about fame as it is about praise. Um, this is a brother whose praise in the gospel is through all the churches. In other words, this fellow is known for his faithfulness in preaching the gospel. And numerous churches, Paul doesn't specify which ones, maybe... Presumably, maybe the ones where he is, maybe in Macedonia, maybe where he was in Asia when he was in Ephesus. Um, Who knows? But numerous churches have acknowledged this. And so this guy, this unnamed guy, is known for his faithfulness in preaching the gospel, and these churches have recognized it and have affirmed it. So his character is not so much marked by fame as it is by faithfulness. That's the point that I'm trying to make. And the churches are recognizing this about him. Look at verse 19. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us, which means to travel with me, as we carry out this act of grace, meaning this offering. He's been appointed by the churches to travel with me as we carry this offering that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So these churches have such confidence in this guy's integrity that they've officially appointed him to accompany an apostle, Paul, as he is taking up and distributing this offering for the saints in Jerusalem. But the key thing to note is that this is not Paul's guy, but the church's guy. Paul didn't select this person. The churches selected this guy. And notice that it says the churches appointed this man for this ministry. Now, this word that's translated appointed, you don't have to write this down, but it's this Greek term, keratoneo. Um, and it, it literally means extending the hand. And as I was looking at this term, I was thinking, golly, that kind of makes me think about the numerous times in the book of Acts where people, the churches would put their hands on somebody to you know, send them out towards, uh, towards some certain ministry. I wondered if maybe that's why Paul cho- chose this term for appointment. Um but I, I'm not. I don't know if it's. I'm not sure if it's that because there's some evidence that this term was also used in the first century to indicate the stretching out of the hand in voting, like in assemblies of people. Um, it, it's very likely that that's what he's referring to here. It's hard to know the precise procedure that those churches in the early days would have used. Was it a formal vote, like where we get in here? And you know, they didn't have Roberts Rules of Order and all that. But who knows how 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 they um, did this? In any case, somehow the individuals in these congregations made their approval known, okay, such that Paul can say that this man was appointed by the churches. The congregations themselves. Now, this isn't the main point of the text, but I do think that you, know, you and I would do well to note some, some implications from this. That, that I, I just want to make some connections for you so that you know that the way that we're doing things around here in this church, Kingwood Baptist Church, is not just willy-nilly. We're not just making this up as we go along because we need to figure out some way to do things. We are trying to draw our own church's polity And the way that we have ordered our lives together here according to the scripture. And we're getting what we do from texts like this. Okay, So this is one of the many texts in the New Testament that support a role for the congregation in the polity of the church. It's in part because of texts like this that we're a Baptist church and believe in congregational church government. It's also why our statement of faith has lines like this, and I'm reading to you directly from the Baptist Faith and Message. It says, quote, Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. End quote. That doesn't mean that the church is a democracy. Actually, the church is not a democracy. It's a, we follow a king. Okay? It's a monarchy. Um, but what does this mean? We use or utilize some democratic processes in the way that we organize our own life together, which means we're having votes. But we have votes not to determine what our will is, for, but, for, but for us to discern together how we are g- going to submit to the revealed will of the Lord in the ministries of our church. That's what that's about. Each of us submitted to Christ in every single vote. The congregation under the leadership, but not the rule of the elders, the leadership of the elders, must have a say in the ministries and the works that it pursues. That's why we do this. We see this modeled here in Paul talking about the churches, appointing these men to the ministry, sending them out to administer money, basically. So this is one of the many texts in the New Testament that support the role for a congregation in the polity of the church. But another thing here is that these individual churches, notice it's plural churches, they've decided to cooperate together in appointing and sending out this guy, this minister. Now, this term for appointing is a term that's used elsewhere, Acts chapter 14 in particular, to refer to the appointment of elders. So when the apostles were appointing elders, laying hands on them, installing them in the churches. In this text... The appointment of elders is is not in view, okay? That's not what they're talking about. But it is several churches, however many, we don't know how many, coming together, selecting a man to carry out a ministry of mercy on their behalf. So, yes, we are a congregational church, but this text is giving us explicit biblical warrant for partnering with other like-minded churches for the purposes of our larger mission. Congregational polity means that no church rules over another church, right? We're not governed by any other outside body. This congregation governs its own affairs under the lordship of Christ. That's what it means to be a congregational church. But that does not rule out the possibility that we might partner with other congregations like we do with the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. In any case, Paul's point here in the text is that the this is the church's guy that's coming along with Titus, not Paul's guy. The church selected him. They chose him, not Paul. And he's Paul's traveling companion because of what the churches chose to do, and now he's gonna accompany accompany Titus to Corinth for that same purpose. Why? Look at verse 20. Why has this guy got to go along with Titus? We take this course. So that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. Got a lot of money we're carrying around. It's a lot of responsibility. And Paul's saying, I'm sending along the church's guy with my guy. So that there will be absolutely no question about my integrity. Or about Titus's integrity in the administration of this offering. In other words, Paul's saying, the more the merrier. This is Paul's way of proving... He has nothing to hide when it comes to handling the money. So look at verse 21. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And don't get tripped up on that last part of the verse there where he says we're trying to aim at what's honorable in the sight of man. This is not Paul saying that he's just as interested in man-pleasing as he is in pleasing the Lord. That's not what he's saying. In fact, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, uh, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about man-pleasing. That's not the issue. What he means is that his first aim is to do what's honorable in the Lord's sight. But honoring the Lord should be done in a way that commends itself to the consciences of God's people. That's what he means. And this is where Paul directly alludes to Proverbs 3, 4, which J.O. read earlier in the service. You remember Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Do not let kindness or truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man in the sight of God and man same thing that Paul's talking about here we're aiming for what's honorable in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of man this looks like a direct allusion to Proverbs 3 4 and, and the idea is this when when you do good good men see it and approve it it's you're commending your, yourself to them This is what it means to walk in the light. Like when John says in John chapter 3, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed, meaning his evil works. You're doing bad stuff, you want to hide it. You do it in the dark. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What's the point of walking in the light? So that your works can be clearly seen, seen, seen by everyone as having been carried out in God. And this is especially the case when it comes to handling money. In our church, you as the congregation are tasked with approving the budget every year. The elders obviously try to lead this process, but at the end of the day, the elders cannot approve the budget. We can't determine by ourselves how the money is going to be dispersed and spent in, in, in this church. The responsibility resides entirely with the congregation. But imagine with me for a moment that our church's constitution didn't have that requirement. We didn't have to come to the congregation for the approval of the budget. And suppose our constitution didn't even require the elders to approve a budget. And let's just imagine a scenario in which a senior pastor or, you know, whoever, I'm not picking on Jim or anything, but uh, me, okay? One of the pastors just takes it to himself to run everything financially. Except he never actually brings to the church any reports on how the money is being spent. He writes and signs all the checks. And he keeps his own counsel. In fact, you don't even know how much he's being paid. And when you ask him him how much he's being paid, he gets offended and says it's none of your business. You just need to submit to his leadership because he's following the Lord. And you can just be confident that he's following the Lord. Well, that's what the text says, right? Just want to do what's honorable on the side of the Lord. Just trust that I'm following the Lord. You ever have a pastor like that? Any leader like that? you need to be seeing a giant red flag going off. There is a major problem going on if somebody is dealing with funds like that. Something has gone really wrong if somebody's acting like that because Paul says in this text, we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of man. As leaders, we have committed to following the Lord in a way that commends ourselves to every man's conscience. Which means we have to walk in the light. 1 Corinthians 4.2 We have renounced the hidden things because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. But by the manifestation of the truth. Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That means that if you have a question about the budget. Or money or anything like that. We're going to tell you the answer. If we don't know the answer, we're going to try to find out the answer. If you want to know how much somebody's being paid, you can find that information out. In fact, when you approve the budget, there's a whole line there for pastoral remuneration. If that's not specific enough for you, you can come, come to any of us and say, how's this divided up? Financial integrity means that you don't run away from the light, but you run to the light. In Paul's case, that means he's got a guy appointed by the church who's traveling with him. No skin off of Paul's nose because Paul's not got nothing to hide from God's people. Yeah, you want to send these guys? Let's, let's do it. In our case, that means that we need more than one set of eyeballs on what we do with our money. We need everybody's eyeballs on it at least four times a year when we come together for our members' meetings. In between those meetings and in between that accountability, we need a church treasurer who writes the checks and keeps the tabs, tabs on the, the finances. We need accounting procedures that let as much light in as possible. You say, that sounds all very mundane and boring. Well, it's necessary. But these principles don't just apply to how leaders handle the money at the church. Some of this applies to how you handle your own financial affairs. Now, listen, everybody doesn't have a right to know about everything you're doing with all your money. That's not what I'm saying. But there could be a problem If you run away from the light and away from accountability when it comes to your finances, just ordinary accountability within your family. For example, are you the kind of person who conceals things from your spouse when it comes to how you make and spend money? If that's you, my question is, why are you running from the light? Why avoid ordinary accountability for your finances? If the Apostle Paul is open to this kind of accountability, I can't imagine a good reason why you shouldn't be open to it as well. None of us should be closed off to that. So what's the purpose here? Paul's administering an offering. He sends an earnest man and a gospel man to help supervise this. And then finally, verses 22 and 24, he sends a tested man. Everybody look at verse 22. And with them, with Titus and this gospel man, with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. But who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you? Here we find out that Paul is sending a third guy to Corinth to help take up this offering. I I don't know. If this is actually the case, but as I read this, I start to get the feeling maybe Paul and these churches are you know, gathering together two and three witnesses to establish a matter. Who knows? Um, we don't know the name of this guy, this third guy either. He's anonymous. But we do know that he's been tested many times and often, Paul says. And on the other side of that testing, this guy has proved himself to be earnest. And there's that word again that we saw in verses 16 and 17. As before, earnest means eager or zealous to discharge a duty or an obligation. It's the same term that Paul used of Titus, except that this guy is earnest on the other side of being tested. So, have you ever had the experience of um, being really eager about something until it began to cost you a little bit? You get tested your resolve gets tested, and then when things get hard, you kind of bail out on whatever the thing is. Um, I think I may have told you this story before, but um, several, I don't know, this is probably like 10 years ago. Um, We never owned a flat screen TV like 10 years ago. Um, But it was uh, Black Friday, and Best Buy was putting one on sale, a giant one, 40 inches. I had never seen anything so big. And it was only going to be $200. And the only thing was you had to go stand in line the night before Black Friday. And I'm like, I'm going to do it. And I got a Kindle and put on my warm clothes. And I go to Best Buy. And there's a line coming out the front door. And then it goes all the way around the back. And it goes down the length of the shopping center, if you guys know where that one is. And so I go find my place in line, and I got out there, and I didn't last an hour. <laughs> I thought that it was really worth having that television until I started putting the cost of having it next to having it. And I just thought, no, my time is more valuable than this, and left, and didn't get it. <laughs> so I was tested, and I folded, right? That's the point. Paul's saying this guy's the opposite of that. Like, you know, you get a good idea in your mind, you're going to do this good thing, and then he gets tested and then he folds. No. This guy's resolve to follow Christ in ministry has been tested, and on the other side of that testing, he's been found faithful, which reveals that this guy really has found God's calling to be more valuable than the privations that he's experienced. He's willing to go through those things. He's tested. When this guy meets opposition, he's zealous to soldier through and to get the job done. Now, it may be that Paul knew this person particularly well because Paul says that we tested him, which means I tested him. Paul had personally vetted this person for this ministry. And yet this guy, it says, is still a church appointed guy. We know that from verse 23. Look at verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Paul calls Titus his partner and fellow worker. That word fellow worker is sunergos, right? You've, uh, you're familiar with the, the coffee shop sunergos. That, that name is coming from this, right? Paul has these fellow workers who are like, official apostolic delegates they have a kind of authority that is uh, derivative from Paul's so he's got his guy Titus who's a fellow worker but then he identifies both of those other two anonymous anonymous brothers as messengers of the churches now I want to make a point here because this is important but that word translated as messengers is the Greek term apostoloi apostoloi and it's where we get our word apostle from And so the question a lot of people ask is, well, why don't our English translations recognize these guys as apostles if it says that they're apostoloi? Well, that Greek term, apostoloi or apostolos, is used in both a a technical and a non-technical sense in the New Testament. In the technical sense, the term refers to the extraordinary office that we're all familiar with called apostleship. It's extraordinary because it's an office only for eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ— who have been commissioned directly by Christ to receive and communicate divine revelation. So when we think of the 12, right, um, Judas minus Judas plus Matthias and then, you know, later Paul, um, when we think of them, we're thinking of people who had witnessed the resurrection of Christ and who were explicitly commissioned by Christ to be authoritative recipients of divine revelation and who would communicate that as foundational revelation for the church. That's that special gift of apostleship. But when the term is used in a non-technical sense, it simply means something like a messenger or an emissary. And so the question is, how do we know the difference between the technical use of the term and the non-technical use? How do we know when it's talking about an apostleship or just a messenger? Well, an apostolos it literally refers to someone who's been sent. It's a sent person. If Jesus is understood to have done the sending, then the apostolos has the technical sense of apostle or apostleship. But if some other person or entity other than Jesus does the sending, then apostolos has that non-technical sense, a sense of a messenger or an emissary. So what do we have here? Well, when Paul speaks of himself and he says, I'm an apostle of Christ, we know that he means apostleship, right? But when Paul says that these two men are apostoloi of the churches, we know that that means that they're messengers or emissaries of the churches. They're not authoritative you know, receivers of divine revelation from Christ like he is. And so that's what we have here with these two men. These two men are not apostles per se, but messengers from the churches, traveling to Corinth with Paul's fellow worker, Titus. None of these guys are apostles in the sense that that Paul is. But Paul's bottom line is this. No matter if it's my guy, Titus, or the two churches guys, you, the church, have a responsibility to them. And that responsibility is verse 24. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. As Paul has mentioned before, he boasts about the Corinthians. He has told his fellow workers. He's told some of these other churches about the Corinthians. And he's told them, listen, the Corinthians in the end, they're going to do the right thing. They're going to meet their responsibility. Whatever their, their problems were, Paul says that the Corinthians are going to come through in the end. And so what he's saying here in verse 24 is he's saying, don't prove me wrong. When these guys get there, don't prove me wrong. Show Proof before the churches of your love for the people in Jerusalem and of our boasting about you. Show proof before the churches because what you do, these men are going to report to the churches. Show proof of your love and that my boasting about you is not wrong. Show proof that you are who you say you are, that you're a Christian, and that you're going to do with your finances what Christians ought to do, which is to contribute to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, which means give to this offering. So that's how the Corinthians show the proof by responding to Paul's appeal for them to contribute to the offering by accepting Titus and these two men as they were as if they were about the business of the Lord because they are and by giving to that offering. So he doesn't want them to love in word or in tongue only but in deed and in truth. That's the point. So Paul has told the Corinthians that he's sending Titus, his guy, along with these two other brothers, the church's guys, so that they can finish collecting this offering. At a later time, they may not even see Paul before this happens. At a later time, Paul's going to take their money, along with all this other, these other churches' money, and he's going to travel in the company of others to distribute that offering to the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. Now, as we finish here, what, what lessons can we learn from this? As a church... And about how we use our money. I think there's a lot of things that can be said, but let me, let me just focus on three things. First thing is this. You need to recognize your duty as a congregation. Um, if you open up the Constitution to Kenwood Baptist Church, this is the document that we've written down that kind of uh, you know, establishes how we've agreed together to submit to the Lord and to his word and the ministry of this church. That's what the Constitution is all about. We want that to reflect what the scripture teaches. And if you look in that Constitution, it says this about your duty as a congregation. There shall be an annual members meeting each December at which officers are elected, positions filled, and a budget approved by the membership. Every year, you have a responsibility to consider and approve a budget And you need to take that responsibility seriously, and you need to be here for the vote. Unless you're providentially hindered, you need to be here. Every quarter, we have a members meeting where the elders and other officers of the church come and present to the church the state of the budget. How much money is coming in, how much is going out. You should be here for that. So... The first thing that I want to say to you is to recognize your duty as a congregation as we've agreed to order our lives together under the lordship of Christ. The second thing is this. Recognize the financial duties of the elders. So we're a congregational church with elder leadership. This is a congregational polity in which you, the congregation, have real powers and responsibilities as a congregation. But it's also an elder-led church, which means that the congregation is covenanted together to select and to follow the leadership of the elders that you have chosen. I'm going to read to you again from the Kenwood Constitution. It says this, Subject to the will of the congregation, the elders shall provide broad oversight to the ministry, financial management, and resources of the church. In keeping with the principles set forth in the New Testament, the elders shall seek the mind of Christ through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the word of God as they undertake the work of shepherding God's flock. The elders shall teach and exhort, refute those who contradict the truth, care for the church's members, and devote themselves to prayer, to the government of the church, and to ministry. End quote. So... What that means for us, especially that part about the elders, shall provide broad oversight to the ministry, financial management, and resources of the church. What that means for us is that we're committed to following the budget that you've approved. But we're also tasked with having broad oversight in the day-to-day and the week-to-week and the month-to-month financial management of the church. Everybody in the church can't all do that at once. That would be anarchy. Okay. A part of our job is to oversee that. So we need your prayers in that work, that we will be wise and faithful in the work that God has given us to do. It's our aim and our desire earnestly to commend ourselves to your consciences in this aspect of our leadership. So we welcome your feedback, we welcome your questions, but we especially welcome your prayers. Third thing, recognize your duty as a congregation, recognize the financial duties of the elders, third thing, Walk in the light in your own financial dealings. Our integrity as a church is built on the integrity of the congregation. We need to be faithful with the resources God has given to us in this church, but it could be, that could all be for nothing if you, the congregation, aren't faithful with the resources God has given you at home which means that you need to be faithful givers to the church's ministry. You just need to chalk it up as a part of discipleship. Ordinary discipleship 101 means that you contribute to the church. It's a part of our church covenant. And you the, the Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And so you need to plan and you need to set aside and you need to contribute to the church. I don't know how much y'all are giving. I don't look at this. The elders are trying not to look at that. Okay? So this is something you're just going to have to do. And you're going to have to take this on as an ordinary um, fixture of your discipleship to the Lord. This also means that you need to be faithful in how you procure and manage your money. No cheating on your taxes. No piling up mounds and mounds of death that you can never. No stealing from your work or from anyone, for that matter. You walk in the light, and you don't resist accountability. Commend yourself to every man's conscience in the sight of God in the way that you handle your money. Like Proverbs 3, 3 and 4 says, Let steadfast love and faithfulness not forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So you walk in the light in your financial dealings and don't consider yourself above the kind of, account- the kind of accountability that Paul has himself welcomed into his own life and ministry. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you're not trusting Christ, maybe a lot of this stuff sounds strange to you, um, we want you to know that the whole reason that we're gathered here and the whole reason we think it's important to have financial integrity is not just because we're moralizers, but because we're followers of Christ. We actually believe that every person ever born is a sinner. We're sinners. And because of that, we have earned punishment and judgment from God. And there's nothing we can do to get out of that predicament. But God has done everything to get us out of that predicament. And what he did was God sent himself in the person of his son to live a perfect life, to die on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. He paid for our sins. He paid the penalty that we deserved by dying on that cross. God raised them up three days later. And he's alive now, seated at the right hand of God, and he offers to us eternal life which means he offers to raise us up after we die, which means he offers to save save us from the consequences of our sin. The Bible says that you can't get connected to that salvation by doing good works. You can only get connected to that saving work through Christ by trusting in Jesus, turning away from your sin and turning to Jesus in faith, believing in him. And the Bible says that the moment that you believe in him, you will be saved. And the forgiveness of sins will happen for you immediately, and you can have the hope of eternal life immediately. If you have not believed that message, you need to believe that message now. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would take your word and apply it to the hearts of your people. Help us to have integrity in the way that we deal with our finances as a church. Give us integrity in the way that we deal with our money as individuals. Lord, I pray we would be faithful givers, cheerful givers, and I pray that you would make us faithful stewards of the resources that you give us. Help us to deploy these resources because we know that they're not really ours, they're yours. All things belong to you, and we are so thankful that you've provided in so many ways for us. So help us, Lord, to be faithful stewards, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.